Our scripture lesson comes from Luke chapter 3, verses 15 through 22 as we walk through this gospel account together. Let me read to you God's word, infallible, inspired, inerrant, authoritative word from God. Chapter 3 of Luke, verse 15 through 22. Hear the word of the Lord. As the people were expectations, in expectation, all were questioning in their hearts concerning John, whether he might be the Christ. John answered them all, saying, I baptize you with water, but he who is mightier than I is coming, the straps of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. His wintering fork is in his hand to clear the threshing floor, to gather the wheat into his barn, but the chaff he will burn with unquenchable fire. So with many other exhortations, he preached good news to the people, but Herod, the Tetrarch, who had been reproved by him for Herodias, the, his brother's wife, and for all the evil things that Herod had done, added this to them all, that he locked up John in prison. Now when all the people were baptized, when Jesus also had been baptized and was praying, the heavens opened up, the Holy Spirit descended on him in bodily form like a dove, and the voice from heaven said, You are my beloved Son, with you I am well pleased. May God add a blessing to the reading of his holy word this morning. Dr. Luke's orderly account written to a nobleman, a Roman nobleman named Theophilus, an eyewitness account of Dr. Luke, under the inspiration of God, has, has given us some really special and uh, wonderful information and insight into the announcement of John the Baptist and the announcement of Jesus, who is called the Christ. Luke showed us that some of the things were similar in their announcement, but as we mentioned before, even though there were uh, similarities, there were contrasts. The main purpose of the introduction of Luke is Christological, to tell us who the person and work of Jesus, that he is supreme, the supremacy of Christ over all things, including John. Jesus' name is salvation. God is salvation, is the eternal king, the holy one. He's the Messiah, he's the anointed one, he's the consolation of Israel, he is the Lord. And from the announcement and birth narratives, we transition to the preparation of Jesus' ministry, which includes, we saw a couple of weeks ago, Jesus was left behind in Jerusalem and really gets a realization, everyone, we know at, at age 12 of who he is and what he came to do, it needs to be about my father's business. Part of that preparation is his baptism, and we'll see today, and then the temptation in the wilderness by the devil. Last week, Pastor Chris did a great job introducing us to John, the ministry of John. But again, we, we saw the ministry of John pointed to a, a greater ministry of Jesus. We see it again here today. That he'll, be, he'll baptize you with water, John does, but Jesus will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. And what we saw in John's ministry is just what the, the, uh, the angel Gabriel told Zechariah, uh, John's father, that he will go before the Lord, make a way for the Lord, for the prepare of the people for the coming of the Lord. And that's what John does, as Pastor Chris mentioned last week. God had not forgotten his people, but moved mercifully toward them by sending his word to John, making good on his promise, end quote. John's baptism, we saw last week, was a physical sign, demonstrating a desire and a commitment to, for the people to show that they know that they need to repent of sin in order to receive God's forgiveness by faith in Jesus Christ. This preparation. Repentance and faith in Christ is where forgiveness is granted. It's, it's, we talked about this last week. It's two sides of the same coin. Faith and repentance. Or repentance and faith in Christ. 
Paul told the church at Thessalonica that they've been an example to all believers all over Macedonia and Archaea, not only because the word of the Lord was proclaimed to them, but he says, but because their faith in God and how they turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God. There's repentance and faith. Repentance is not a work that earns us forgiveness. Repentance, listen, is the correct and right response to sinful and rebellious behavior. Turning from it. That's what repentance means. When you forgive, it's a matter of grace. When God forgives, it is still a matter of grace. Repentance and forgiveness is a matter of grace. In fact, if you think about it, if somebody sins against you, and they confess their sin, they repent and turn from their sins, they don't put you in their debt. You freely, graciously forgive. Not merited. It's impossible to place your faith in Christ and turn from your sin without changing your mind about sin. Changing the direction about who you follow. Sin becomes a reality and you see it for what it is. And God grants us faith and we turn from that. And we follow Jesus. John's baptism is the preparation for that because Jesus was coming. Preparing people the baptism of repentance. And as we see John here, as we move forward, we'll see three things in our text. We look at chapter 3, verse 15. First, we'll see the renewal of the Holy Spirit. Jesus comes with a better baptism. Then we'll see the reproof of John the Baptist as he confronts sin. And then the righteous fulfillment of Jesus we see in his baptism itself. And we'll look at this in two parts today and then in two weeks from now as we look at the genealogy of Christ. There's a connection between this baptism and speaking from heaven, uh, God speaking from heaven about his son, the genealogy, and then the wilderness temptation. There's a connection with all three. It has to do with the sonship of Christ. So we'll deal with that. But so far, or at least this morning, we'll look at the renewal here first, verses 15 through 17. Remember, people are coming out. John is doing what John is called to do, preparing the way for people to, for the coming of the Lord, preparing their hearts, calling them to repent. Even, even talking about last week, uh, we saw last week that John says to the, co- to, to the people coming out what it looks like to repent. What are we to do? He says, do this and do that. It, it's not earning salvation. It's the fruit of repentance. Repentance, metanoia. Meta means uh, uh, change, implying change. No, neo meaning perceive. It's a, it's a change of mind. It's a change of action. It's, it's intellectualizing uh, in your mind and the thoughts that sin is, is real. Sin is, is, you know, not only real, but it's a sin against God. It's emotionally, it's feeling remorse. But it doesn't end intellectually and emotionally. It ends with volitionally turning, changing of our context, uh, of our conduct. It's all three parts, the mind, the heart, and the will. And as John is preaching, I think it's fair to say, those who were responding to the message of repentance, look what it says in verse 15, had a heightened sense of the messianic promises of God. Look at verse 15. As the people were expectation, were in expectation, as their expectations was enhanced, their hearts were questioning, is, is this the Messiah? It, it, has Christ finally come? Is the Savior here? Is the Redeemer here? Speculation, I'm sure, were running wild as people were coming out to the Jordan to be baptized. Could God finally, after 400 years of silence, come to redeem his people? 
And the questions in their mind reached their lips, and they began to inquire, Are you the Messiah, John? And John answered them by saying, No. I'll baptize you with water, yeah. But someone's coming who's mightier than I. I can't even uh, strap his sandals, untie his sandals. He'll baptize you with the Holy Spirit and with fire. Verse 17, his winnowing fork is in his hand. He's, he's going to clear the threshing floor. This is someone greater than I. I'm not even worthy to t- untie his shoes. He's going he's to come. He's going to baptize you with a different baptism. He's going to clear the threshing floor. He's going to gather wheat. He's going to burn up the chaff. <laughs> See, four things that John is pointing to in his contrast here between him and the Messiah. Four things. But before that, I, I want us to see something here this morning. I think it's very important as he's comparing the, the contrast, how great Jesus is. Notice what's going on, though. John's ministry is all about Jesus. I know that seems like, oh, that, yeah, we got that. But it is the height of John the Baptist's ministry. He's preaching. He's been called to preach. He's proclaiming the word of the Lord. People are coming out. Word is getting out. He is growing in popularity. Yet John keeps his focus on the purpose. The purpose was to point people to Jesus. Our task is to point people to Jesus. That Jesus may be great in people's eyes. He must increase while I decrease. We cannot point to Christ and point to ourselves at the same time. And popularity and success can easily distract us from the mission. If you were here back in September, we had a building dedication. The first thing we did with the building dedication a few weeks afterwards was go back to our mission. We don't want to be distracted. We don't want to lose focus. We don't want to sizzle out. The mission, demonstrating, declaring the gospel. May that be the case for King Chapel always, no matter what popularity. John says, look, there, there are four reasons why I'm not the Christ. Look at them with me for a moment. Jesus says, Jesus, first of all, is mightier. He's mighty, he's strong. In sheer power, Jesus surpasses John. If you remember, we studied the book of Isaiah together in chapter 11. It spoke about Jesus and the spirit that would, would descend upon him or be upon him. We see that coming up. But in chapter 11, verse 2 of Isaiah, it says, And the spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him. It's 800 years before the baptism. The spirit of wisdom and understanding and the spirit of counsel and the spirit of might, power. Jeremiah just simply says, the Redeemer is strong, the Lord of hosts is his name. What you find in the gospel accounts in Matthew, um, excuse Mark chapter 3 and Luke 11 is that Jesus comes and he is strong, he is mighty, he will bind the enemy. The Jewish scribes were accusing Jesus, if you know the story, of being possessed by Beelzebub. And by the prince of demons, he was, he was casting out demons. And Jesus refuted their, their blasphemous argument with just plain logic. He says, how can Satan cast out Satan? Jesus says, no one enters a strong man's house without first tying him up. Then he can plunder the strong man's house. Jesus refers to Satan as the strong man and to himself as the one who enters the house and plunders what's there. Luke 11 
says this, when a strong man, Jesus speaking, when a strong man fully armed guards his own house, his possessions are safe. But when someone stronger attacks and overcomes him, he takes away the armor in which the man trusted and divides up his plunder. Saying Satan is strong. He holds possession. He guards what he has jealously. But, hallelujah, Jesus is the one who is stronger and defeats and binds the strong man. He's the only one who can bind the strong man and rescue you and I from the strong man's clutches. That's what Jesus says. He is not only stronger, mightier, but look what it says. He's more worthy. Worthy means qualified, greater adequacy, uh, more sufficient, suitable. In those days, it was customary for students following their rabbis, their mentors, their teachers. It was customary for them uh, to, to, to do privileged things and to, to show their dedication to the teachers by performing basic acts of service. So if a group of students would follow a rabbi and, uh, you know, especially a well-known sought-after rabbi or, or mentor, and they pretty much did everything for the rabbi, you know, did everything for him, except unlacing the sandals. One ancient rabbi said this, Every service which a slave performs for his master shall a disciple do for his teacher except the loosening of his sandal thong. Going way too far. John the Baptist wasn't even worthy to do that. He, he was unworthy to unlace the sandals. Not that John has no value, but in comparison to the immensely and immeasurable worth of Christ, he says, I am unworthy. By comparison, he was not just the lowliest of low, he was even lower. And the people wondered whether John might be the Christ, but John told them he did not even deserve to be the master's slave. He showed that, he said that to show the, the, the supremacy and the superiority of Christ, who is the worthiest of all men. He is stronger, he is more worthy, and that's why Jesus looked at it as a greater baptism. People are coming out to the Jordan, man, getting baptized by John. As we already mentioned, it was a, it was a baptism of an outward sign of repentance. Yes, he called for the fruit of repentance, but one thing different uh, that we see clearly here in his baptism is John washed you outwardly. He came out maybe a little bit cleaner than when you went in. But he couldn't change the heart. But when Christ came, he would baptize people with the Holy Spirit and with fire. John called people to repentance. Outwardly, Jesus changes us from the inside. Only God can do that. Spiritual baptism happens at conversion, okay? And one of the things that we see in the New Testament, you may not know this, but all the, all the washings, ablutionaries, you know, all the cleansings of the Old Testament were done by the person doing the washing. In other words, you'd wash your own hands, your own feet. Even proselytes from Gentiles to Judaism would, would, would go in the tank and fully immerse themselves when John is saying... You can't do it yourself. There is no salvation. Someone needs to come. I baptize you with water, but someone will come who's mightier than me will baptize you with the Holy Spirit. The point is clear. You can't save yourself. And spiritual baptism, we know what that means, particularly in 
the New Testament, we turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 12. It's a good place to turn if you have your Bibles there. 1 Corinthians 12 teaches us a little bit about spiritual baptism. 1 Corinthians 12 says, we, we, For we were all baptized by one spirit into one body, whether Jews or Greeks, slaves and free, and we were all given the one spirit to drink. So we see that the, 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 the reference to the Spirit's work of initiating us into the body of Christ. And notice in 1 Corinthians it says that we are all baptized into the body. Right? I know there's a lot of confusion today about baptism of the Holy Spirit. It's not a second blessing. There's no such thing as conversion, being born anew, and then you're waiting for some sort of sign. People are looking at the book of Acts and not interpreting correctly as a book of history, telling us what happened, not why it happened. We turn to the epistles for that. It's not a separate event from regeneration. We do not teach that here. John's baptism, yes, was ceremonial. And Jesus' baptism is supernatural. It is, the, it is the eternal, internal revolution of the heart when God plants in us his spirit. And the baptism of the Holy Spirit takes place when we, him or her, are placed into Christ. It's the, act by, it's the act by which we are brought into union with Christ and we are infused and brought into union with one another. Think of it this way. When someone comes to faith in Jesus Christ, the Bible still says that we should be baptized. Matthew 28, very clearly. To show forth what has already happened spiritually. That we have been born anew by the Spirit. But when they come up to, the, come up to here, they've got our new baptism tank, um, there, 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 there's someone who's being baptized. There, there is the, the baptized, the one that's being baptized. Then there's the one that's doing the baptism, and that would be me. I'd be in the tank or one of the other pastors. And then there's the element, which is the water. And I say all that because Jesus Christ is still the baptizer. He will baptize you. Jesus will baptize you, okay? There, 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 is, a, there is a sense in which Jesus is the baptizer, and according to this verse, all Christians are baptized, and the element of the agent of baptism is the Holy Spirit. So it is Jesus doing the work, it is Jesus being glorified, it is this gospel of salvation that brings us into union, even though the Holy Spirit is the one and the element of doing the work, showing us the, the beauty and glory of Christ. Does that make sense? Jesus is still the baptizer baptizing us with or in the Spirit, incorporating us into himself as he gives us new life. Christ in me, and I am in Christ. So when we place our faith and trust in Christ, we repent of our sins, we believe on the Lord Jesus. Jesus Christ himself, the baptizer, baptizes us into his body, and he comes into our lives. Happens at regeneration. It happens at regeneration. Only God can do the inner work of salvation, leading to renewal, eternal life. That's what Jesus told Nicodemus. You must be born again. You must be born anew. You must have renewal of the heart. Okay? And not only a renewal of the heart, look what he says here. He'll be baptized with the Spirit and with fire. One preposition. So it is one baptism. Baptism of the Holy Spirit and fire is one idea. A lot of uh, speculation of what fire meant in that passage. I think if you look at the Old Testament, it has to do with purging and judgment. Um, I, I think what Jesus is saying is that when you are, you are baptized in the Holy Spirit, there's that union with Christ, and there is a separation from the world that takes place. There's a purging going on of your soul as you're being cleansed and washed, and the Bible says that we've been separate from sin. We have been brought into the kingdom of God. 
baptism with fire. Derek Bach, I think, says it well. He says, the Holy Spirit and fire represent two integral aspects of Jesus' one ministry. He comes to gather and to divide. The offer of the Spirit must be received. Those who respond are purged and taken in, while those who are rejected are tossed away like chaff, as verse 17 suggested. He says this, Jesus is far superior to John because in the end, it is Jesus alone who matters for any one person, end quote. Mightier, more worthy, changes the heart, renews the heart, and lastly, brings judgment. Verse 17, it's common common, you know, maybe not for you and not, certainly not for me, common picture of people who were listening is a picture of a farm. At harvest time, a farmer would come, he would separate the wheat from the chaff by, by tossing the grain in the air. The grain would fall. The wheat, uh, toss the wheat in the air, the grain would fall, and the chaff would be blown away by the wind. And that's what Christ is going to do. John says, Christ will do the same thing with us. He talks about judgment. John the Apostle writes to us in chapter 3 of John, whoever believes in him, that's Jesus, is not judged, not condemned. But whoever does not believe is judged already, condemned already. There's already judgment on those who will not come to Christ because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. But one day, what John is pointing to, I think here, is, is something greater in the sense where at some day at the end of time, there's going to be two people Wheat and the chaff. I know this is hard to, 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 to understand maybe, or at least hard to, if you're not a believer and, and, and you never heard this before, let me gently and lovingly say at the end, you're going to give account to God. I'm going to give an account. We're all going to give an account to God. And those who have embraced the gospel, who have been forgiven of their sins, will be brought into the storehouse of heaven, and those who reject the gospel, refuse to repent, and want to be their own Lord and Savior, will be burned up. Un quenchable fire by its definition is eternal unquenchable it'll never stop john's talking about the wrath of god and final judgment of everlasting punishment and for the fires of hell god loves you and god loves me and god made a provision for you and a provision for me he sent his only son as an atoning sacrifice who died in your place Live the life you couldn't live and lived and died the death you should have died. And he's calling all men and women everywhere to turn from being their own Savior and Lord. Stop running your own life. Turn from sin and trust him. That's a warning that Herod didn't want to hear either. Look at with me in verse 18 through 20. It really showing. John's faithfulness to the gospel, faithfulness to God's word, faithfulness in the proclamation of the gospel, and, and the response of some people will be severe persecution. He's, he's, he's persecuted, John, he's persecuted. And, and he's not a respective person. You can see the, the ministry that God gave to John to, re, to call people to repentance. He, he, he steps to the king, who's a law unto himself. It's one thing to say something to a to a, 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 someone in our culture, in our day, there's not much they can do. You tell that to the king in that day, he doesn't have to answer. There's no appellate division. <laughs> right? They're, they're, not, they're not, oh, let, let me see what somebody else says. The king has the final say. Verse 18, so with many other exhortations, he preached good news to the people, but Herod. 
da 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 Herod, yeah, good news, it's called damnation. Like, if you don't repent of your sin, you're going to hell. I mean, that was, the, that was the call. To turn from your sin, Herod. There's bad news before there's good news. And we live in, a, in an ever-increasing age of tolerance and the idea of actually calling somebody out on their sin, call it wokeness, call it whatever you want, is becoming less tolerable. But John remains faithful to the gospel. He keeps preaching the good news, no matter who the audience is. He preached the same gospel to Herod, the Tetrarch, and those who came out in the wilderness. He does not bend the message to suit their itching ears of his hearers, and he doesn't care about the cost. I think all of us would like to believe that when I share the gospel with someone, whether they are high, moral, rich, lawyer, judge, whatever, would be the same as I would share with those that are maybe down and out. I'd like to believe it would be the same message. Sinner, turn, repent, God loves you, receive Christ, right? I'd like to believe that. John must have had some, at some point had an audience with the king, and the king is not happy. Herod divorced his wife, married his sister-in-law's, uh, married his sister-in-law, ruining two marriages, committing adultery, had lots of people killed and murdered, a wicked man, and he refused to repent of the preaching of the gospel. And John is like, I'm calling you out too. Everyone, everywhere. That's what Jesus said. John chapter 1, excuse me, Mark chapter 1, repent and believe the gospel. John's saying, repent and believe the gospel, and it got him killed. Luke chapter 9. Put in prison, as we see here, and got killed. Okay? So I just, I just let, let's look at this story for a moment. Let's just rest here for a second. Let me just share with you, I've shared with you before, let me just share my heart with you because of this passage. We live in an ever-increasing hostile culture. We do. Toward the gospel, toward the word of God, believers are called crazy, backwards, ignorant, who stand on a biblical worldview, who hold to the scriptures as the final authority in life and practice. Whether it's dealing with issues of abortion, the murdering of unborn children, whether it's dealing with gender confusion, pronouns, sanctity of marriage, as we stand on God's word, we're becoming more and more increasingly hated, separated, and just trouble at every every turn. Recently, I had a conversation with our teacher, uh, our principal at our school district where we live, and I, I want to talk to them about the curriculum. And just hear my heart this morning. And I know a lot of families are facing this. And I, I talked with him about the curriculum that was going on in the school district, and I want to just let him know uh, where we stand on some of the issues. I share with him my concerns, and as soon as I began to share his concerns about some of the CRT and other things that were going on, he immediately began this long story, and he's just doing his job. I got nothing personal. I actually like the guy. Uh, he's going his job telling me about, you know, uh, the school district and how their position, they are to accept everyone, and they're, we're here for the community, and they went on and on. And as I was listening, my immediate concern while talking with him was somehow that he was, did not understand my objection. It wasn't that I reject people. In fact, I told him I love all people. My objection was their agenda and how I was not rejecting people, but I was standing on biblical principles that we were Christians and followed scripture and that we follow the law of God and the word of God. And somehow, 
there was this tension between the two of us. I had tried to explain to him that we're, we're trying to teach our grandson things that you're teaching them is in opposition to the things that we were teaching them. It's becoming more and more and increasing in our school districts, in our neighborhoods, in, in our, and with family members to confront evil and the ungodly agenda in our culture without being labeled, right? Now, to be sure, we need to stand on Scripture. We need to confront the culture that is anti-God, that is against Scripture. But we need to be careful to do that with love, care, and concern, but also recognizing family that there may be a price to pay. John paid the price. We need to live in a culture at a time in which we know the word, love the word. We need to follow Jesus' command that says, let your light shine before men, Matthew chapter 5. Living as true witnesses of the gospel, shining our light, being motivated by the gospel. Peter says, put in your heart, but in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy. Always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect having a good conscience, so that when they are slandered, when they slander you, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. For it is better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil. Our responsibility is to be gentle, respectful, yet declare the truth in love and leave it there. We must also recognize that as, as more and people are opposed to Christ and the gospel, they're going to become more and more hostile to the gospel, but we are not fighting against what? Flesh and blood. Against rulers we're fighting, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers, over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Now there are some, and I don't mean to take a bunny trail, but let me just say, there are some people who call themselves Christians. They're a bunch of hateful, Westboro Baptist crazy lunatics out there. I didn't say Westerlo, Westboro, because <laughs> Westerlo's our friends, we love them. Y'all know, if you don't know what I'm talking about, don't look it up, see me afterwards, don't even bother. They're hateful people. We don't want to be them. We don't want to be them. But we, ready, we, we better be ready, because it's coming. If it hasn't come ready. Most people are okay with your beliefs. They'll, they'll, yeah, you believe what you believe. I believe. Some people are just hostile. I've heard stories from you. Especially when it's a whole abortion thing turned. It's your fault. You're a Christian. You did that. I'm like, okay, if it's our fault, I'll take that one. I'm glad it changed. You know, and then they, they, want, they want to kill you. They want, they want to hate you that you're doing something. You got to stand on, listen, I love you. I have nothing against you. We love children. We're, we're not, we stand against abortion. You know, you know it's, there's got to be a way. There's got to be a way that we can share the gospel in love, be gentle, respectful, but family, it's coming. If you haven't experienced it, you will, where you're standing on this book. Are you ready? Lovingly, respectfully, honestly, honorably, family against family, against school district, against neighbors, this is who we are. We just have to do it. We got to figure out a way to do it lovingly and respectfully, but honor the Lord in all that we do. Sometimes we just have to distance ourselves against those crazy people, but we still need to stand on God's word. But I'll tell you what, and I know I, this testimony is all through this room. If you as a follower of Christ have a loving heart, you're kind, you're humble, you're compassionate, 
You recognize your own sin. You recognize that all have sinned and fall short. And you are consistent in that. That's going to be your way in. And that's what you're going to stand on. In the end. On the word of God. And your loving, kind, and compassionate heart. The problem becomes. Is when we start getting. And I start getting angry. Cold. And want to you know, say something or do something that's going to blow my witness. We've got to be careful not to do that. We've got to be careful that we're filled with the Spirit, filled with love and compassion, and hold to the truth of the gospel and the truth of God's word, whether it's the school boards or wherever you are. And I know that's going to be hard. John did not bend a knee to the culture or to the king, yet he was also ready, I'm sure, to pay the price that it cost him, and it cost him his life. There's nothing neutral about the gospel. There is nothing neutral about the gospel, either for Christ or against Christ. Herod ultimately took John's life and refused to repent while others responded to the message and came out and were, and were baptized anticipating the coming of the Messiah. And then we see in verse 21, Luke just, just mentions it quickly. Jesus also had been baptized. And you got to say, if you're not saying it, you need to say it. Wait a minute. John is calling people to repentance of sin and then Jesus comes out from Galilee, we know from other gospel accounts, and says, baptize me. Wait a minute. You're sinless. You're perfect. You're without blemish. You're the Lamb of God. And you now tell John to baptize you? Is there something different? Like, what's going on here? Why in the world would Jesus who has no sin, say, baptize me, as John is baptizing for the repentance of sin. He had no sin and no need to repent. Well, Luke and Mark's account uh, is rather short, but look what we see in Matthew. Matt, and I want to bring this in because it's very important to understand this baptism. Look at Matthew chapter 3. says this. Right here. Then Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to John to be baptized by him. John would have prevented him saying, I mean, this is, this is the right response. The perfect spotless lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world, John says, you want me to baptize you? I'm not doing it. That's what he says, I'm not doing it. I need to be baptized by you. And do you come to me? And Jesus says to John, let it be so now, for thus it is fitting for us to fulfill all righteousness. Then he consented. You don't want to tell Jesus no. I don't care what you say. You don't know what you're talking about. Like, you don't want to say that. You say, yes, sir. I got an explanation. Good enough. And the first thing we notice in Jesus' baptism is that there's a shift going on. Jesus is being baptized by John. John is calling people to repentance. And the mantle, or the uh, baton is being changed. It's one hand to the other. Jesus is saying, John, your baptism is, is unique, your baptism is right, and it is good, and I will be baptized, and I know you're preparing the way of the Lord, but now it's time for the mantle, for the, for the, for the, for the baton to be part, taken from John the Baptist to Jesus. Jesus is giving him credence, uh, credence, credibility, and validity, but the baton has been changed from one hand to the other, the new ministry. John is calling people to repentance. Jesus is going to call people to follow him. What we should also note right here as well is that Jesus, we saw this in the first two chapters, 
even now in his ministry, he is publicly identifying himself with the sinners he came to save. Jesus purposely identified with the righteous actions of his people. They were called to repent. And now Jesus stands in the water as in our place, not just as a sin bearer, which he will do on the cross, but here he is also in the righteous actions of others, an active and positive obedience we owe to God. And Jesus provides perfectly everything of the law, everything that's been commanded by God, and his willingness to be baptized shows that for the remissions of sins, sins that he has never committed. But he's identifying with those who have. A deliberate decision to stand in the place of sinners. And I love the way John, if you look at the text, John says, all the people were baptized. Everybody's in the water. Full immersion, that's what baptism is. All the people were baptized. And then Jesus was baptized. Sort of like, you know, it's kind of one baptism, but there's actually, there's a distinction between the two. Because Jesus is baptizing not for the repentance of sin. He's baptizing, being baptized to identify with sinners. Solidarity. You see, in order for Jesus to die on our behalf, to take our place, in order for him to purchase righteousness for us, he needs to identify with the sinner. And in the incarnation he does, and we see here in his baptism he does as yeah, well. He identifies with man, yet without sin. The book of Isaiah says he was numbered with the transgressors, sinners. So the main reason that Jesus comes and he's, he's baptized by John to identify with sinful people, the sinless son of God, is baptized. Comes out of this Nazareth, shows up on the scene, and identifies with sinners. And he was without sin, goes into the water. John calls him. I mean, you could just see the scene, right? I mean, can you imagine? John the Baptist is screaming. I, I, I know we don't have that kind of, you know, I'm kind of adding to it, but I don't think John the Baptist with bugs coming out of his face and teeth. Hey, everybody, um, y'all need to repent. I don't see that. I see John the Baptist yelling. Yelling. Bunch of wicked sinners. Come to repent. Show forth the fruit. You root of, root of vipers. Like, you know, it's like, hey, you nice little people. Like, that didn't happen. And then all of a sudden, Jesus comes out. We see other gospels. He says, the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. He who's without sin goes down into the water for sinners and says, I take my place. I'll take my place. I'll identify with you. Jesus is a friend of sinners. You know that? Jesus is a friend of sinners. The sinless Jesus who did not need the baptism of repentance associates himself with sinners and places himself among the guilty. Not for his own salvation, but for ours. He associates with the guilty, not because he was guilty, but we are. Not because he feared the wrath of God to come, but to save us from the wrath of God to come. For he who knew no sin became sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of God, 2 Corinthians. He didn't come as a great, just as a great teacher or moralist. He came as a substitute. And according to verse 21, when he comes out of the water, what is Jesus doing? He's praying. See that? I mean, you can see him just come out of the water. He must, he must have come out of the water just praying right through the water and speaking on to the Father. Stands in supplication before the Father, receives the Father's endorsement and enablement. And we, we see three things happen. We're going to talk about two of them. One, 
the heavens open. Two, the Spirit descends like a dove. Three, a voice comes from heaven. You are my Son, whom I love, with whom I am well pleased. You can imagine there, just, can you just see outside the Jordan, people all over, and all of a sudden the sky just rip open as if a light just broke through. And let me tell you, God did not open the sky so he can get down here. God opened the sky so that we could see up. Okay? So that we could see up. The hand of God revealing himself to the people on earth. God taking the initiative to show humanity the way to him. And their eyes focused up as they see the skies rip and all of a sudden the Holy Spirit descends on Jesus bodily like the form of a dove. A visual, tangible descent of the Holy Spirit. Matthew says that, Matthew gives us Jesus' perspective. It says, and he, Jesus, saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and, and, and landing on him. The Gospel of John says, this is what John the Baptist saw. I saw the Spirit come down from heaven as a dove and remain on him. Luke just says, the Spirit of God came down and remained on him. Manifested him. We've never seen anything like this in all of biblical history. First time ever the Holy Spirit is, is depicted as a Dove. There's all kinds of speculation about that. Is it peace? Is it gentleness? You know what I think? And it's not only I. I'm not saying like I've got all the answers. Genesis 1. Genesis 1, you have the, you have the Spirit of God hovering over the formless, dark, and void earth, hovering over the face of the, word, of the earth, and then God speaks, right? And you have God the Father, and you have God the Son as the spoken word, and you have God the Spirit. You have the triune God in creation. What do you have here? God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. All throughout Luke, we're going to see this empowerment of Jesus. Not like Jesus didn't have the Spirit. It is a tangible, visible sign that says Jesus has been anointed by the Holy Spirit, in power of the Holy Spirit. He is not doing this independently of the Father or the Spirit. That The triune God together launches Jesus into the ministry three years until the cross, and the cross, and the resurrection, he never leaves. That's what this is all about. And God the Father speaks from heaven, pronouncing his benediction on the Son. God the Holy Spirit descends, and God the Son is being baptized. What a salvation. What a salvation. God the Father, we see in Ephesians 1, appoints our salvation. The Son accomplishes salvation. The Holy Spirit applies our salvation. The entire Godhead is present. Without each piece, salvation falls apart. And let me tell you, John the Baptist preached repentance, but it was Jesus who would drink the cup. The unquenchable fire, Jesus will drink that on our behalf. He will take the Father's wrath for you so that you can receive forgiveness when one repents and turns to God for Forgiveness. So let me ask you this question, and we'll come to a close. Are you here this morning, and do you know the work and the renewal of the Holy Spirit? You must be born again to enter the kingdom of God. Have you been born anew? Are you playing religion? Are you here for whatever reason, your spouse, your friend, whatever? Have you been born again? Have you truly repented of your sins and gave your life, completely surrender to the person and the work of Jesus have you done that? Have you changed directions? Are you following Christ today? Are you his disciple? Don't be like Herod who failed 
to recognize his sin. Don't let your sin keep you from God. He's a friend of sinners. All have sinned and fallen short of God's glory. You see, the heavens were torn and God came down to do what we could never do for ourselves, and that is to rescue us, to redeem us, and to save us, and to renew us. And last is the band. Ben, you guys can come up. Let me just say one last thing. We'll talk more about this in two weeks. The God, Jesus is praying. Heavens are ripped open. God says, this is the way up. The, the Holy Spirit, the third person of the Trinity, is descending upon the Son as the Father speaks. You are my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased. Pleased in the incarnation. Pleased by his perfect life. Pleased by his obedience in baptism. But ultimately pleased because of the work of the cross. The good news of the gospel is that if you believe on the Lord Jesus Christ for your salvation, that God is pleased with you. The Father's beautiful words of affection, the Father's beautiful words of approval for his sons are yours in faith in Christ. Jesus came to bring us into the Father's love. If we try to stand on our own merit, our own work, and our own uh, uh, works, we would never gain his approval. We would never deserve his affection, but when we stand on the merit of Christ, when we stand in the gospel, when we recognize Jesus is loved and beloved and, 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 and cared for and pleased by the Father, and when we are in Christ, all that is ours. All that is ours. We stand before the Father on the merit of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now God the Father looks on us with the same affection, the same approval that he has for Jesus Christ, his worthy son, his mighty son. Do you know him today? Have you trusted? Have you been born anew? I invite you to come to Christ. We point to him. He died that death that you should have died as an atonement for your sins. He has died in your place and absorbed the wrath that you deserve. He loves you enough to do so and rise from the dead. If you call upon him, he'll forgive you. If you call upon him, repent of your sin, he will place his spirit within you. You have a new heart, a new desire, and a renewal of life. Trust him today. Let's pray. Lord, in the quietness of our hearts, you know each one of us. And you know whether or not we have truly trusted you. So with the curtain around our heart, God, we confess our sin, we acknowledge that we have not lived the perfect life as you have called us to. We acknowledge that Jesus Christ is the Lamb of God, the perfect spotless one who identifies us with us in our humanity, yet without sin. He goes to a grueling cross and dies as our sacrifice in our place, taking what we deserve upon himself and rises from the dead and we turn to you, trust you, worship you, and follow you all the days of our life. And Father, thank you for this passage. Thank you for your word. And help us to now worship you in thanks and gratitude of Jesus Christ who is the gospel. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.